I'm so optimistic because I've seen in the last few months a change in the attitude. First the people, the young people, then the politicians, then the public sector, and now the whole society have realized that we cannot waste more time. Like Republicans took years to get to a place where they were even comfortable having a discussion about climate, where they were comfortable proposing solutions. And then you got a bunch of teenagers blocking streets, lecturing adults, yelling and screaming and picketing. And I'm going, no, we were so close. We were so close. And now you have this pretext to go, I can't, I can't deal with this world. Millions of young people took to the streets last month to demand that their governments take bolder action on climate. Days later, world leaders assembled at the United Nations for a high-profile climate action summit, where dozens of countries pledged to boost their climate goals. But did any of this resonate with American policymakers? We discuss in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. We're coming to you today from sunny Los Angeles, where we have a lot to report back on from a whirlwind week out east. Our producer, Victoria Simon, and I were running around the United Nations Climate Action Summit and various other New York Climate Week events. Then I went on to Washington, D.C. to participate in Clean Energy Week, so I'll have some insights to share from that. Plus, the last couple of times we've been recording remotely, so we're finally back in the same place with our co-hosts. Speaking of them, I'm here with Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, and Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan. How you guys doing? What's up? Welcome back. I know. It's good to be in one place again. How was it, Julia? It was insane. Every moment was filled with a speech or an event or a meeting. But really, when it comes to the UN summit, the main theme was to bring commitments and not just speeches. The problem there was that while there were some commitments, the biggest emitters weren't part of them. So on the plus side, we had by the end of the week, some 77 countries agree to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, as well as more than 100 cities and more than 100 companies. Also, 70 countries committed to boost their nationally determined contributions. So those are their climate commitments that they set under the Paris Agreement. You had nine multilateral development banks pledged to raise their annual climate finance to $175 billion globally by 2025. You had new funds launched around resilience. You had banks committing to new climate targets. And then in addition, some countries stepped up and increased their contributions to the Green Climate Fund, which is a financial mechanism operated by the UN to help developing countries to mitigate and adapt to the effects of climate change. So you had an additional $1.5 billion added to the fund just last week, bringing the total to more than $7 billion. And then finally, there were some more specific things, like the UK committed $250 million to a global energy storage program. And so there were more specific announcements like that. But I think ultimately the real takeaway was that the U.S. and China, the biggest emitters, were not really at the table. China did take part. They gave a speech, but didn't add any new goals or targets. And while President Trump actually made an unexpected appearance at the climate summit before going to a separate event on religious freedom, 
there was no real presence for the U.S. There were no announcements. And so I think it really left people feeling like this was a mixed bag. Let me ask you this, Julia. I didn't go this time. Uh, I went last time five years ago in March um, in the climate march in New York. uh, And there was like this like wave of enthusiasm around that. Uh, What did people say? Does this feel different this time or is it going to be like another false start? I think it felt different because of the numbers around the protests. So in New York, there were more than 300,000 people at the Friday protest ahead of the UN summit. And again, more protesting the following Friday. I think the record numbers were worldwide more than 4 million people took part. On the flip side, Varshni Prakash, who we've interviewed before, who's with the Sunrise Movement, pointed out in her New York City speech that Earth Day in 1970 brought out 20 million people in the U.S. alone. So if you compare it by that standard, this is just the beginning. So there was definitely a sense of momentum, momentum around getting young people to show up at the polls next year. You're going to have a lot of first-time voters who are very engaged on this issue, but that this cannot just end now, that this wasn't the culmination and the end point, that this is like a steady drumbeat. So I think it's, uh, again, kind of a mixed bag there. This has still got a long way to go. And people were waiting for the major countries to to issue commitments. And I will note here that it's not just youth activists who are waiting. World leaders are also speaking out. And on that note, I have an exclusive interview I want to share with the president of Chile, Sebastian Piñera. I spoke to him on the sidelines of an Atlantic Council Global Citizens Award ceremony where he was honored. And that was interesting because Chile is hosting the next COP25 summit, the climate summit coming up this December. And so Piñera has been playing a key role in getting other countries to boost their climate commitments in the lead up to that event. Now, domestically, Chile has already taken a leadership role here. They've committed to phasing out fossil fuels and achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. When I spoke to Piñera, I asked what he made of the U.S. and China's weak engagement at last week's climate summit. Here is an abridged version of that conversation. We are facing the largest challenge of our lives. So it's very incredible that the two main superpowers, instead of being leading together, this fight for our lives, they are engaged in a very absurd tariff war. I hope that they will change and they will realize that we need them because they are the two superpowers and they are not playing their role on the leadership. How do you think you bring them along? What changes? Well, there are some people that are skeptical. I've heard, for instance, President Trump that he doesn't believe in climate change and global warming. I think that we know too much to remain skeptical. This is not a question of politics, faith, or any other matter. It's a scientific matter. Today, I saw President Trump attending one of the meetings on climate change and global warming. And that was a very good signal. And as a country, you've committed to full decarbonization. You're getting rid of coal. You're phasing out of it. You have strong public transportation goals, I know, also high efficiency standards, and you're reforesting much of the country. Yeah, because to become carbon neutral, it's not just a question of saying or willing. You need to put a plan in action, and we have done that. And is there broad public support for that? Do Chileans understand that this is important for them? This has changed a lot. If you had asked me that question a few months ago, I would tell you not enough. The situation has changed dramatically in the last few months. Now the consciousness, the commitment of the people with Fighting climate change with real will and compromise is really very, very fantastic. Why, why I'm so optimistic? Because I've seen in the last few months 
a change in the attitude. First the people, the young people, then the politicians, then the public sector, and now the whole society have realized that we cannot waste more time. We have only one decade to change the course of our world. So you heard the president of Chile there calling out the world's biggest emitters for not taking their leadership position seriously. That interview, by the way, will be available in full in our show notes. Uh, Other things we talked about were that the focus will be on rainforests, oceans, and the poles at the upcoming COP25 in Santiago. And of course, this is all leading up to COP26 that's taking place next year in the United Kingdom, which marks the fifth year anniversary of the Paris Agreement. So that's where countries are expected to really ramp up their nationally determined contributions or NDCs. So Pinera is going to do everything he can to increase the momentum leading up to, to that moment. So a lot of oh pressure on countries to act up, <laughs> to take action. Yeah, it's insane. Shane, were you following any of this stuff last week? No, not really. Um, And in fact, just taking a step back, it's so great to be here in person with you guys. One of my favorite parts of this show is seeing the looks on your face when you realize you were wrong. And so I'm going to enjoy today more more so than I have in a while recording remotely. But no, I I haven't been following it. Interestingly, um, what I have been following is sort of... Coming in hot, Shane. Oh, yeah. asshole thing to say totally totally yeah i got turned on the volume I, I, you here. know i'm sitting here i'm juiced i'm ready to go um and, and and all joking aside of course i love doing this but all joking aside i had not been following the summit in my experience in my sort of day-to-day work where we're trying to move the ball on things a lot of these international agreements don't really resonate they don't really get you know the people that i work with uh, motivated to do you know specific things or, or, or start reaching to these 2050 goals but i think there was a lot on the right um and i share this view as you guys know just sort of annoyance with some of the youth protests and you know a lot of people don't necessarily think that blocking people's ability to get to work from a day-to-day uh on a day-to-day basis is productive. So my takeaway would be very different than yours. I know that you said you saw a lot of energy, a lot of momentum, and this feels different than it did five years ago. To me, I've got my head in my hands going, how did we get here? Like Republicans took years to get to a place where they were even comfortable having a discussion about climate, where they were comfortable proposing solutions. And then you got a bunch of teenagers blocking streets, lecturing adults, yelling and screaming and picketing. And I'm going, no, we were so close. We were so close. And now you have this pretext to go, I can't I can't deal with this world. I can't negotiate with a Democratic Party that's beholden to a bunch of children. I'm not saying that's what the Democratic Party is, but I don't think this is helpful at all. In fact, I think it makes it more difficult to move the ball on some some of the important things that we all want to see get done. Well, I think you're missing the a point about the UN summit is that it's not just about the US. This is global leadership and people of all different parties, actually, which is fascinating to me that you have conservatives in other countries taking leadership on this. And they were resonating with Grenda's comments only in the US, as I heard Mitt Romney say at a later event, is there even a debate about this? And so I think you have a very US-focused lens and you're talking about the Democratic Party, but at this event in the, at the UN, it was really about global action. My, you're right. My lens is very focused on the US, but I also know that this problem doesn't get near a solution without the US and China. That, I mean, that conversation stops right there. It doesn't matter what these other countries want to do. If the two biggest economies in the world don't want to participate, then the conversation's over. So I think our lens needs to be focused squarely on the US and China. And having nice feelings coming from smaller countries is good and fine. And it might you know move the ball from a momentum standpoint, But I don't think it gets us closer to where we all want to be, which is reducing global emissions in a very significant way over the next couple of decades. Young people have always played a role in historical change uh, and movement building. You look at the civil rights movement, uh, people like John Lewis, you know, the current congressman from 
Georgia. He was 20 years old at the time, and he was like one of the top leaders uh, of the movement. You had young people, the Freedom Riders, getting on buses and going down uh, to the South and registering voters. So you know, why is this a problem, Shane? I don't know. In fact, you sent me an article, to your credit, on making that exact point, and I don't disagree. I'm looking at it, and I'm going, you know, this makes sense, and that is what happened. The Civil Rights Movement was obviously very, very impactful, and I'm willing to concede to you all and to our audience that we could look back at this five years from now and I could go, man, I was so wrong. So I'm not foreclosing on the the the, um, the uh, possibility that this could end up being helpful. I just look at sort of my day to day and I'm someone who really wants climate solutions and I get sort of viscerally angry when I see young people shutting down New York City streets and Washington, D.C. streets to protest an issue that I actually need to get to work to work on. And so I'm not saying that everyone shares my feelings, but if I want to find a solution and I'm angry, I can't imagine if you're you know, a right-leaning individual who does not want to find a solution, how much this gives you the ability to say, we're not dealing with Here's a prediction I would make. All right? If the Republicans would do something on this, they might stop shutting down the streets. <laughs> I disagree, because what we've seen is we've seen Democrats, Democrats propose solutions and get mocked by these groups. We've seen them basically say that not going far enough is the new denialism. We've seen left-leaning, climate-progressive Democrats be accused of being climate deniers. So I disagree with that. I think if Republicans were able to pass and enact a carbon tax and authorize EPA, and I'm not saying this would happen, to put carbon regulations in place or a cap-and-trade scheme, I don't think, you know, Sunrise would go, job done, guys, let's go get real jobs. I think they would continue to say, not far enough. That's not what far activists enough. do, though. That's their role. They take one extreme. They're not trying to be policymakers. And I, I, don't, I don't take a position on any of their exact proposals. I look at the effectiveness of the communications and what it then causes people in power to do. Companies stepped up. Other world leaders stepped up. Republicans are stepping up. The day, a couple days after the UN summit, I went to DC for a Clean Energy Week, which is hosted by Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, a right-leaning organization that engages Republicans on these issues. They had an amazing lineup. Senator Romney, they also had Representative Matt Gates, who launched the Green Real Deal in the House, who's a, a Trump supporter, as well as Senator Mike Braun, who launched the Senate Climate Caucus just recently. And they were all engaged on this and they acknowledged the youth leadership had piqued everyone's interest, that it had captured the country's imagination. And, and Representative Gates actually credited Greta with creating a viral moment and, you know, tugging on the country's heartstrings. He then turned it to say, she blames us for not taking action. I blame House leadership for not putting up to a vote some of the things we all agree on already with respect to climate action, which I think is a totally fair point. He didn't dismiss anything she was saying. He just said, you want us to act? Let's do it politically. So that's totally fair and two different points. I mean, one, even if everything you said is perfectly accurate, it supports my point that they will not stop blocking streets, even if Republicans act on climate. Two, what we don't need is to have the people who are already on our side, even Republicans like Mitt Romney, who have been on the side of cap and trade and, and climate for, for a decade. We don't need those people to say nice things about teenagers. We need the people who are not on our side to get in line. Those are the people I'm going after. And I don't think personally that youth activists gets, you know, someone who has to go back, not has to go back, but goes back to their communities in, in areas where, where things maybe aren't going so well economically in the South and, and throughout certain parts of the Rust Belt in the Midwest and say, you know what, I wasn't going to do anything about this, but I was convinced by, you know, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old in New York City that this is the right thing for our community in Southwest Arkansas. I just don't see that being, you know, a way to move the ball with the people who don't already want to solve the problem. 
part of this too is just getting people who are maybe on the fence or apathetic about this issue engaged. I had a drink with a friend who works at a big tech company after covering the New York Climate Summit. I met some of his coworkers, all very plugged in, and they just barely even knew that there was a protest taking place in Battery Park down in Manhattan. So this is also just getting people to even be interested. Like you're in it, and so you're analyzing how is this playing, et cetera. And the lawmaker reaction is very important because they ultimately you know, have to take action and feel compelled to do so. But in terms of just getting people off the fence and maybe thinking about this issue, not all of this even breaks through the news cycle. And in fact, Trump's impeachment proceeding that the Democrats announced they would launch uh, just around the time of this summit totally dominated. You know, there were people at the UN just covering that. And I actually think some of the climate coverage got pushed down because of it. Yeah, I think we should talk about that. But one impact on the elections that, you know, the the youth strikes could have is, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before, but in Iowa, particularly in the Barack Obama 08 campaign, um, young people had big influence on their parents going out and caucusing for Barack Obama. I mean, you know, parents really listen to their kids, right? And so um, if these kids are going back home and, and asking their parents, like, hey, this is really important to me. I need you to vote this way because this is my future. Um, that could that could make a difference in the elections. Yeah, I mean, I talked to kids who are now going to school in New York, but were from Texas, say. And they were talking about how their local school now is having a protest or not even a protest but like a learning day about climate issues which was not something they had even experienced when they had left high school a couple years prior so you're seeing and this is not in in austin this was like some town in texas i'd never heard of before so i thought that was just interesting this is breaking through especially among young people and it could have an impact on on their parents what i will say is that it comes back to who holds power because unless politicians really feel like their seat is threatened they won't act so it has to not only just be something like a young person educates their parents they gotta then vote on it for it really to have any impact and i don't know if we're there yet well and power flows up right not down and so at the end of the day politicians will get in line with any solution that their constituency wants especially if they can prove tangible benefits to the people who vote so i think you're right that you have to get people on board raising awareness but as we talked about you know offline yesterday is all press good press? I'm not qualified to answer that question. If it is, then yes, more people are aware. I sometimes wonder if you're introducing a topic in a way that people find annoying, does that turn them off to wanting to be you know, proactive and productive? My view is, is very clear. I think I've made it clear over the last 10 minutes, but, I, but I'm willing to acknowledge that everyone's different and maybe my view is the minor, minority view. Well, like the activists aren't policymakers. Their whole goal, again, is to beat a drum. And yes, they're going to show up every day until they get what they think is the most important, which is like carbon neutrality by 2050 and mass mobilization in the next 10 years to get there. And so for sure, that's their prerogative to take to the streets. I don't see why that is interfering or even necessarily part of what the lawmakers do. They can take that energy or not. Why would it influence whether or not they put up real bills? Because actually the Senate Committee on, on Energy has passed 21 bills on a bipartisan basis. This is Lisa Murkowski and Senator Joe Manchin. You're talking about the Republican led Senate, which is very different. They're not beholden to these groups, right? So if you're in the House, as you mentioned earlier, why aren't these they are passing groups, some of these all, bills? These are, these are protesters we're talking about, right? You well, I mean, protesters. like I would say Sunrise, or, Sunrise is a group. You can call, I mean, yeah, I, I define group. Beholden, not that they're not funders. I, I'm just, no, 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 I'm not saying they're funders, but I'm saying that, yes, the Republican led Senate has a lot more flexibility in saying we want to push our innovation agenda, we want to pass things that we think are going to be okay with our electorate and also will help solve the problem. I think on the left, you're in a situation where you might put up a good bill 
a very good bill. And AOC challenges it. And now you've got problems on Twitter and everywhere else with, with Sunrise and some of these other groups. So I actually think it's easier for Republicans to pass the kind of bills you're talking about that Senator Murkowski passed than it is for House Democrats to pass something, not to pass something because they can get 218 votes, but to pass something that might be palatable to move across to the other chamber. Well, meanwhile, those 21 bills that I mentioned are totally stuck until McConnell puts them up for a vote. So you have things like fostering investments in energy storage that has bipartisan support that's just going nowhere. And it may not even go anywhere till after the election. Senator Romney, again, was talking about how he didn't realize that as majority leader in the Senate, you have so much power because you control the agenda. And if just a couple people in your party don't want to go on the record for something, then nothing happens because he doesn't want anyone on the record. I mean, I'm not trying to say that because it's, uh, you know, to be political, but I think there's a feeling of frustration. And I think that feeling resonates across the aisle. Losing a whole year on this is really, I mean, it's awful, right? I mean, this is an issue where there is a shot clock, so that's a huge problem. Well, and we've talked about this, and I, and I know we've talked about it ad nauseum, so I won't go into it anymore, but certainly there are things that Republicans are, are blocking. I'm not pretending like it's, it's all the right or it's all the left, but you and I have had this debate several times on this show. Can we afford to lose time? And I, my point of view right now is that we're f- much farther away from making progress than we were before this issue became the sort of powder keg that it has been over the last couple of months. I think the, I actually think that the issue is more polarizing than it used to be. The one bright spot that I've seen in polling and in my day-to-day experience is corporations want to act and they don't need permission from voters to act. And so we saw polling the other day, I think I shared with you guys, where Republicans and Democrats, the delta between them was very small on should corporations be more proactive in addressing climate change. That's a really small delta that we have not seen because most climate polling shows a huge gap between Republicans and Democrats. So I think some of this attention has got corporations and shareholders active, which is really, really good. But I think from an actual political point of view, it's it's a little bit more volatile than it maybe it was when these were more calm sort of discussions that people didn't really understand. Well, well how, how so? Can you explain that? What about this? I guess you're you're referring here, I think, to the youth movements specifically, not like the U.N. summit. Right. Well, what what about that is making this harder? Uh, not, I mean, the youth movement, I think, is part of what amplified the issue and made it more, you know, sort of politically out there. I mean, and we've seen in the Democratic primaries, it's out there. I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's good that yeah, this Democrats issue is being Yeah, Democrats are being discussed. pressured by this, too. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, 100%. I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's good that attention is coming to it. But I do think that there were, were small ball things that are still better than nothing that are less likely now than they used to be. So I think you used to could say, hey, let's do a, a storage bill tied with some extra DOE funding. And everyone would be like, that's OK. Now, maybe that's true. But, I, but I'm not sure that we could pass something like that because I think there would be enough people out there saying it's not enough and we're not going to allow them to you know greenwash or save face with this BS bill when we should be asking for so, so much So are more. you arguing that the bigger problem is these kids protesting than Mitch McConnell? I am arguing— Is that the argument you're making? I, I don't think I'm choosing bigger or smaller. I, I'm saying that I think making an issue more politically toxic makes it harder for Mitch McConnell and everyone else to act. If these things are popular, why wouldn't McConnell act? He's nervous about the political implications. He wants to keep the Senate majority. So, so then how does it get done? Because when uh, youth were not protesting and this issue wasn't getting enough attention, Republicans didn't feel any, they weren't compelled in any way to, to, to take action. Now people are raising it. They are out in the streets. And now that's a problem. So like, what, what's the magic formula to get the Republicans to do something? You know, I honestly don't know, but I but I think that I would disagree that there weren't good like carbon capture bills and R&D bills that were floating around. The same stuff Republicans are talking about now, they were talking about before these activists came out. 
right? We just weren't talking about it constantly because I didn't feel the need to issue press releases because the issue wasn't so, you know, so much in the fore. So I agree with you that these protests brought the issue to the forefront of our public policy discussions. And I don't have the answer. I wish I did, but I, but I don't think, at least in my day-to-day experience, and I'm willing to say that I'll, I'll limit it to my experience because I can't speak for anyone else, these protests are not getting Republicans who didn't want to engage to go, you know what? I was wrong. I'm glad they raised the issue. And now I'm going to be more productive on this issue. Senator Romney actually had a similar view that he shared at the Clean Energy Week event, and he put it this way. Demonstrating the streets is a fun thing to do, and I'm sure it has an impact. But it doesn't move people who aren't seeing that from their own constituents and people who are funding their campaigns. So that's where the pressure has to be. And so to the extent that there are more and more companies and groups of all kinds who find this to be a high priority, you'll get people to respond to it. That being climate change. So the point there is it really comes back to who is compelling politicians to act. And I think that comes back to who's funding them. And um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse addressed this by narrowing it specifically to the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers as being two of the worst climate obstructors because they are funding, uh, you know, and supporting Republican senators, he specifically said. And if you could break that hold, he thinks there would be 12 Republican senators who would back a carbon pricing bill. And so he's like, we have to work on, you know, loosening that grip. And he talked about it as, you know, breaking these Republican senators out from behind this fence because they're engaged and interested, but they're not being compelled yet by uh, where the money is, I guess. And I would say, why get the chamber to break their hold over Republican senators? Why not get chamber members who want to be productive to convince the chamber to be supportive of climate action. That would be my approach is if all these senators really feel beholden, and I don't know if it's that black and white, but if that's if that's the argument being made, let's get the chamber on board because most of their members want to see progress. It sounds like they are, though. So I guess he did go on to say that the chamber has started to evolve its position. They launched a climate they launched a climate task force recently. And White House was saying it was kind of strange that they were even so opposed, given that a lot of their members were open to climate action, a lot of their corporate members. But perhaps it was the fossil fuel ones or others in the manufacturing sector who were really hesitant. And that became the line. Most of the time in D.C., when you want to avoid an issue, uh, you just start a task force on it. Uh, so I'm not encouraged by uh, that that action. That doesn't make me think that uh, much is going to happen from the chamber. And I think it's also an interesting contrast, your point, Julia, about, you know, there are these Republicans who uh, feel like they could step out, but, you know, they, they won't because of the money. Look at all these Democrats running for president aren't taking corporate money. And and they that's a, that's a big difference. Well, and grassroots fundraising has been you know more successful on the left. Maybe that's because they're better at it. Maybe it's because they've been doing it longer. Maybe it's because individual donors lean left. We but just have more people. That might be true. They and just don't vote. So what I what I would say then they they give away money but doesn't but don't vote. That that is a problem on your side. But I would love to see let's let's get some clean energy money or climate money. Let's call it climate money. Let's not even call it clean energy money. Let's get some climate you money going to some energy? of these senators who <laughs> don't want to be beholden. So let's get some some climate activists who have money to spend. Maybe Howard Schultz. Maybe Michael Bloomberg. Let's get them to if these twelve senators really want to vote. If they really want to vote for climate action, but they're too scared because the chamber gives them too much. Let's just find a billionaire to give them that much, and let's be done with it. Mm. If that's what they want. That's an interesting point. 
Who knows uh, Bloomberg here? Howard Schultz. Let's get him. Let's <laughs> get him on the hotline. <laughs> Call a friend. It's, who wants to be a bajillionaire? <laughs> Political I mean, version. <laughs> I'm being a little flippant, but I'm not. I'm, I'm actually not trying to be. If the issue really is chamber money versus no money, that problem can actually be solved in a matter of weeks, as opposed to some of these bigger issues, which take sort of generational change. Yeah, I guess I don't know if it's the sheer dollar amount. Again, I'm just sort of paraphrasing what the senator said, Senator Whitehouse. He talked about it as a problem of trade associations and front groups. Now, to complicate things a little bit, I wonder how much of this is the influence of money versus legitimate interests. You know, I think ultimately politicians are worried about what the impact on their district will be. So if they are from a fossil fuel district, if they're being told by oil companies, hey, we're going to lay off a bunch of people, they don't want that on their watch. So it may not be as simple as the pure dollars. That is the tool to, you know, enact influence. But there's a broader policy question, I think, up for a debate here. And that's where, uh, again, it really comes down to people who want to support climate action, showing that this will work for people in these senators districts so like if the manufacturers are the people that are worried about this and funding obstruction then someone needs to engage the manufacturers and show that this is an opportunity i think that's actually a hard thing to do but that to me seems like it's it's more than just the dollars you have to actually make the case well and i don't want to beat a dead horse but the point you just made was cleaner and better than the point i've been trying to make for the last 30 minutes which was that's what they're worried about is jobs at home. If people say these jobs at home are going to go away, and that's why, and I'm not circling back to this topic, but bringing it full stop, that's why I think the youth activists are the wrong voice because what you know more seasoned policy professionals would say is we can replace those jobs and we can, re- we can help those communities grow. What the youth activists are saying is fossil fuels need to go away tomorrow. So if I'm one of those people who's going, I have a bunch of fossil fuel workers in my district. That message doesn't help me bring my my banner home and get people on board. Whereas, uh, hey, there's new tech and innovation hub being built in our district, and they're going to you know employ uh, oil and coal workers or whatever. Well, I would encourage you to listen to our last two episodes where we spoke to youth activists who talked about <laughs> their we agenda. Took a couple weeks off. We didn't take any time off. <laughs> no, just time off from you, Shane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Didn't get the calendar invite. Uh, yeah. So the youth activists talk about their agenda around these strikes and they specifically talk about a just transition including for fossil fuel workers that is part of their platform they are not that's what people hear when they see the news when they see the roads being blocked when they see the signs and the chanting no more fossil fuels i I, i'm not arguing with you that the nuance of what they want might not be popular if people ever know about it but politics is not about what you want it's about what people think you want and the picketing and the screaming and the yelling i can tell you if you go into to to a manufacturing district and say what do you think those protesters want for you they're not going to say just a just transition where i can get a better job that pays more that's not what they think does that apply to the tea party yes of course so when they were out you know doing their protests that you, that, that was a turnoff at this very moment at this very moment i have no idea exactly what that movement wanted allegedly they wanted to to reduce the debt but how that, how's that going Right. They wanted to reduce the deficit. How's that going? So I don't know what they wanted, honestly. And I don't like protest, period, as you know. And that's a me thing. That's not a country thing. I just don't like protests. I don't care if you're on the right or the left. I just think it's not a productive way to move public policy. The other point I was going to say is we had we had the governor of New Mexico on Michelle Luan Grisham talking about the 40 million dollar fund they put together, an equity fund in transitioning fossil fuel workers and communities as the state goes toward 100% clean electricity. So let's have her be the voice. That's a message that people want to hear. I think the thing is, like, there's a lot of voices here. And again, I would be curious. got to cut through the noise. 
I think the protests again are just cutting through the idea to the mass population that something's going on with the climate and it's not good. I think we pay close attention to maybe what's on a specific sign, but I think even getting on the radar is a challenge. As a communicator, I feel like that's step one. How it's then being perceived by politicians, I honestly think it's just given them a cause to engage and then it's up to them to put up their own solutions. It could be a conservative solution. That's legitimate, you know, that's yeah. separate from the protest. And you and I just fundamentally disagree about whether or not just getting on the radar is enough. And you very well might be right. I don't know. And I don't think any of us will know for years now, but we just disagree on that premise. I don't think that just being on the radar is sufficient. I think if you come on the radar in a way that some people find distasteful, you've lost potential allies. I'm not saying I'm right. That's just my view. And on that note, actually, here's a couple of voices of people that we heard speaking to me at the New York strike. Here's what they had to say. I started striking every Friday in front of the United Nations headquarters in solidarity with Greta Thunberg. And so for the first couple of weeks, I was alone. But now the movement is continuing to grow more and more and more students are getting involved in striking. And so what's so important is with that consistent action every single Friday, you see more awareness and more awareness from our politicians and world leaders. Today is different. Uh, we started this uh, striking on March, global strike on March 15th. Then we did one on May 24th. But September 20th is different because we are inviting adults to join us. We recognize that striking from school is not going to solve the climate crisis. Striking from school is not going to, you know, make the world go green. But it's going to enable the political mechanisms that can and the cultural mechanisms that can by bringing this issue to light. So I think for this strike movement to continue and to be truly effective, we need to turn it from a moment into a movement. We need to turn it from just showing up in the streets to making it clear that politicians will win or lose their seats based off of their positionality on this issue. We need to turn it into a political movement. I definitely think that young people have a higher moral authority now. Um, we see a lot of people listening to us. We were just on the Capitol Hill um, for the last week in Washington, D.C. Um, they had young people testifying to Congress because they want us on the record saying what this crisis means to us. Um, and I think that we see this as a really historical, pivotal moment, just like the way civil rights was and young people led that. What was it like to testify on Capitol Hill? <laughs> it was scary for sure, uh, testifying in Congress, because uh, I knew that there would be Republicans on the pen on the, in the hearing, and that they would have a uh, pushback, and that they would have things to say to us um, that maybe we didn't necessarily agree with. But me, Greta, Jamie, Benji, um, a conservative youth climate activist, was up there, and I think we all really spoke to our truths as young people. Well, I um, mean, even if we had different visions of what that looks like and what we need to do to fix the climate crisis, we definitely have this shared vision that young people are integral to this movement and that something needs to be done. The voices you heard there were of 14-year-old Alexandria Villasenor, the founder of Earth Uprising, and one of the youngest organizers of last month's global climate strike, followed by 17-year-old Shia Bastida, an organizer of the Fridays for Future Strikes. Then we heard from Barshani Prakash, who is 26 and the leader of the Sunrise Movement. And finally, 20-year-old Vic Barrett, a plaintiff in the Juliana versus United States climate case and one of the young people to testify on Capitol Hill last month before the House Climate Crisis Committee and a House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee. So one last question to you, Shane, on this is, you know, a lot of people feel when they hear Greta speak this sort of moral that they feel morally compelled to act as adults and I'm curious if you feel that no part of this, taking the politics out of it, does it make you on an individual level feel like I need to actually step up? I know you're doing lots already in this area, but does it compel you in any way when you think about does it does it does it pull on your heartstrings in any way? 
For me, no. Uh, and part of that might be because I've sort of made that decision years ago. So I'm not, I don't need to be convinced by anyone that this is a problem. That's something that I decided to do. That's something, you know, we took a risk and built our firm around. But also, I just have a different view on the value of the opinions of youth. Like I, I care for my children. And I'm probably overbearing because I know that they're sort of helpless. And I know they're not 16. But the point is, I can think about what I was thinking when I was 16. And if I made my life decisions then, I would have a pretty terrible life right now. But now I'm not saying that about Greta. I'm just saying that about me. And so I don't What were you doing when you were 16 though? <laughs> not protesting at a UN summit. I'll tell you that. And so I just get the sense that I'm never going to have any sort of emotional response or any sort of call to duty or any sort of higher cause come to me from a teenager. That Again, that doesn't mean that no other human being does, but I think of them as children that need to be protected, not leaders that need to be listened to. I'll make two final points on this. One is I think the youth like Greta have been effective because they're not proposing specific policies. They're not claiming to be experts. Uh, what they're saying is adults take action. We want to be protected and just do something that reflects the science. That is their ask. And I think that is a very compelling ask. Uh, and number two, you know, you asked, like, what was the Tea Party about? Um, I think it had something to do with the black guy. That's rough. I, I'm not endorsing that. To be clear to our audience, I am not endorsing that. I mean, I thought it was healthcare taxes deficit, but yeah, clearly it, just, it wasn't. You know, we we took care of taxes, um, had not taken care of healthcare, and did not tackle the deficit. Well, speaking of taxes, there was actually another piece of news out of D.C. that Republican Representative Ryan Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, who we talked about when we think of back to the midterm elections, he introduced a carbon tax bill last week that would fund improvements in infrastructure. Did you guys catch that? Any thoughts? Going anywhere? Did I, I mean, my thought is that we've seen this bill before, um, and I like it. I'm not, that's not disparaging. It's just we've seen this bill before. This was the Curbelo bill um, from last year. I actually am surprised more people aren't taking this seriously because put climate aside for, for a moment. Government has had one huge problem for the last decade. Everyone agrees the gas tax doesn't work. Everyone agrees that we have crumbling infrastructure. Nobody can agree on exactly what the definition of infrastructure is, and nobody can agree on how to fund it. So if you have two problems that can solve each other, I'm not saying this is the perfect solution, but Republicans, too, should say, look, we all acknowledge there's a gas tax. That's already a tax. We all acknowledge we have a revenue shortfall in our highway trust fund. That is a fact. That is not debatable. So we should look at every possible way to solve this problem. And if we can move that tax burden from one topic and have it solve another problem without increasing the overall tax burden on the American public, people should take that seriously. Another piece of news coming out of D.C., uh, Senator Schumer told Bloomberg's Ari Natter that, that in 2020, Democrats, if they take back the Senate, will bring a, quote, big, bold climate bill to the floor. He said Democrats are ready and primed to address the climate crisis. The other party is standing in the way. He said they won't divulge details just yet, but it's, quote, going to be big. It's going to be bold. It's going to be something that just doesn't deal with this issue in terms of little bites and little nibbles. Brandon, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what do you think? Schumer would be willing to put up in 2020, and, and where would that go? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, even if we take back the majority in the Senate, which will be tough, then the next question is, what are you going to do about the filibuster? Because if the answer is nothing, then it doesn't matter. And there we go. Back to back to the glacial movement of Washington, D.C. for you. It does kind of make me feel like, is there any way out of this gridlock? Well, it just feels like we're going to be stuck on repeat. I wonder, too, and Brennan, I want to throw this to you. Let's say, for example, that um, you guys won a couple red seats and got a 51-49 majority. 
Um, and let's say that they effectively got rid of the filibuster. Do you think that the makeup of your majority, because of the seats you'd have to win to get it, do you think that you could get all hypothetical 51 Democrats to vote for a sweeping climate bill that would, I don't mean like a, a good sound climate bill, but I mean something like the Green New Deal. Do you think that the, the Democrats who took those seats to give you the majority would, would get in line with Schumer and, and, and vote yay? Well, the the senator, uh, the 51st senator there would probably be Joe Manchin, right? So what does Joe Manchin, what is he willing to support? Um, and so what I think is that uh, today, no. Um, but this issue is moving fast. And this is what I think people in D.C. and often many pundits make the mistake of is they they view something as what does it look like over the last, you know, historically or right now and not thinking about where is it headed. And as we've talked about in the show many times, uh, the framing of this issue and support of this issue has changed dramatically. Even since we started this podcast, you know, it has moved dramatically. The, the debate has moved. So where will this be in 2021? I can tell you that um, like the civil rights movement, you know, which I, you know, I'm getting older, but I, I still was not old enough to remember that. But like there were highs and lows. There were like it took a lot to get to the Voting Rights Act. If people would have said in like, you know, the 50s, was the Voting Rights Act possible? No. But after, you know, sustained pressure from activists like we're seeing right now over many years, uh, then they built a movement where you could have sweeping legislation. And that's what's going to take here. I mean, to your point about ebbs and flows, we saw fewer Democratic presidential candidates take part in the MSNBC two-day televised town hall than they did in the CNN seven-hour long discussion. So, I mean, what do you make of that? Are we losing momentum here? Do the candidates feel like they checked that box and can move on? Look, as somebody who's worked on a presidential campaign, the most valuable resource that you have on a campaign is the candidate's time. And so... Look, they all went and did this climate forum. They did each 40 minutes. They, I thought, were terrific. They were substantive. Uh, they can't do every climate forum. Well, I thought the top two didn't. I thought Biden and Warren did not do the climate forum. No, I'm talking about the other town hall. You're talking about the, the CNN I'm one. I'm talking about the CNN town hall. They all participated yeah. in that. They all participated they... in that, right? Yeah. And they dedicated significant resources because you think about that town hall, what goes into it. Like there's the prep time. You got to be there in person, you know, 40 minutes. Like you really got to know your stuff. So I'm sure that took a couple of days of like the candidates time to just do the CNN town hall. Now, you know, you got to do you're being asked to do another one. They've got debates. There's a Democratic debate coming up on October 15th. They have to prepare for there's like 12 Democratic regular debates. The candidates need to be out there talking to voters, right? And especially in early states. And so they they can't do those are hard trade offs to make. They can't do every climate form. Do you possible. think the protesters and the youth activists were disappointed in that? Do they feel like it's falling off the agenda? Sure, and that's okay. That's okay for them to like do their job and continue to keep the pressure on. I think another thing I wanted to discuss was the fact that, again, the U.S. was not very present on the world stage in New York at the U.N. summit. Again, President Trump did attend a portion of the morning sessions, I believe, while Greta was speaking or perhaps while the secretary general was. Uh, but then he went on to an event on religious freedom. Uh, I will note that Russia, meanwhile, ratified the Paris Agreement around that same day. Uh, but what was really coming from the news around President Trump was, of course, this Ukraine uh, drama and the uh, following investigation that the Democrats announced they're going to launch and have started, obviously, to work on. And so I'm curious how you guys see that 
affecting the climate discussion? Are we going to suck everyone else's time? Talking about time being the most important resource. Are we going to suck the public's time up with impeachment so that climate does just move down the agenda? I don't know. I mean, and I think anyone who tells you they do know is, is lying. But what what's interesting to me is if I were, and of course, you could say this about anything, and I'm sure I'll, I'll be wrong about this too. But if I were a presidential candidate, I would let the House deal with impeachment and I would be talking about all the thing, great things that I want to do. I've seen more of these candidates weigh in on impeachment prior to the House weighing in on impeachment, which I thought was kind of an odd move for a campaign. But the thing that I, that I worry about is someone, again, who cares about climate and understands we're not going to solve this problem tomorrow. It takes time is that um, we won't know what this election's about. Whether Trump wins re-election or whether he's beat, uh, defeated, we won't know if impeachment is the sort of lead topic du jour. Did voters turn out because the climate movement you know, inspired them? And if we had that information, that would be really helpful to use in, in, in trying to you know, promote public policy. Did they turn out because they were, they were angry about Ukraine or Russia or impeachment or whatever? We're not going to have, I think, as good an exit polling, and we're not going to have as good of a sense of what the election was about. Sometimes you say, this is a health care election. Nancy Pelosi in 2018 this is about health care. This is about kitchen table issues. This is about the things that President Trump promised he'd do that he didn't do. That was what she ran on. I don't think we're going to know what they're running on if impeachment is the number one topic. It's a huge variable now in this election. Um, And I I don't think anybody knows how it's going to play out. This story changes hour by hour. Just look at the polling over the last five days and how it's moved. Now you have, you know, in some polls, a majority, you know, supporting this inquiry. So it will be tough, you know, for climate, I think, to get attention or any other issue, uh, depending on how this plays out. It is sort of interesting, though, for some of these candidates, you know, some of them might be able to make the case that they have the judgment. They were prescient on this. I mean, Tom Steyer, what were the two things that he cared about for a long time? Impeachment and climate change, right? I don't know if that will make a difference to voters, but some of those candidates that were out there saying they were for impeachment early, um, that actually might be helpful, I think, in, in, in the election for them. Can I take, for both of you, can I take a small angle? I'm just curious on both your responses. Um, do you think that it makes sense Assuming you had a willing Senate who was who would remove the president, do you think it makes sense to try to impeach someone when they are currently running for reelection? Or do you think it makes sense to put it to the American people and say, you get a choice, you get it right now. This is how long the impeachment trial would take anyway. We want to we want you to decide who your next president's gonna be. I what I am excited about in this inquiry is that I want the voters to be able to make an informed vote. And in the past, we haven't been able to get the full picture because the Trump administration has blocked efforts to do proper oversight. And what happens with an impeachment is you get special legal tools where you can get the information that you need. We've already seen that the Trump White House was covering up information by making certain stuff more classified than it should have been so that people wouldn't see it. So let's get the facts out there. I don't think that the only jury here is the Senate. I think the jury is the American people. I think the Democrats should frame it this way. We are going to put the information out there and let you decide next November. I'm personally just really glad to be Canadian, and uh, I'm tapping out of this one. Um, First person out of that sentence. I'm just really happy to be Canadian. <laughs> oh, definitely not. Very proud Canadian, and yeah, don't vote in the United States. I, I, I'm happy to leave this to you. Um, and on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, one thing I'll note on the global warming point is that according to a United Nations report released last week, 
Global emissions are rising and will not peak until after 2030. Based on current country policies, we are on a course for over three degrees of warming by the year 2100. So, Oh, every day. I mean, the Oceans Report that came out since we did the last show, you know, very scary. I mean, they never come out with a report that says, oops, we were off. It, it's not as bad as we thought. It's always, oops, this is happening faster and it's worse than we thought. And with that, let's go to our final section. Okay, now it's time to say something nice. We battled back and forth, had lots to say. Uh, now it's time to have our co-host say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, do you want to go first? Sure. So mine is not related at all to politics, really, or um, or climate, certainly. But mine is about uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, who just signed a bill that would make it possible for college athletes to make money off their own likeness. This has been a problem for a long time, um, insofar as that there's billions upon billions or hundreds of billions of dollars being made available to the NCAA and to universities. Meanwhile, a lot of these kids who don't come from a lot of money and are working their butts off and, and earning those brands a ton of money are not benefiting from that. So I think it's going to be very confusing how this plays out with the NCAA, but uh, I think it's a good step in the right direction to try to help some young kids who are working very hard. That's a really interesting point because I, I saw something where um, like the top 10 or 15 men's college basketball programs are at universities are primarily white and the basketball teams are primarily black and they're making these schools like Duke and uh, Kentucky billions of dollars and then none of that money is flowing you know, the other way. Right. Shane no, not, supports I mean, those youth leaders, but not the climate leaders. Well, I'm not I'm not asking them how to run a country. I'm thanking them for what they're currently doing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, That's Brandon, over one, to Shane. you. Um I am saying something nice today about uh, Republican uh representative Doug Collins of Georgia. By the way, great name, Doug Collins, former uh Chicago Bulls head coach, uh which Michael Jordan's coach at one point. We're so um, sporty today. Jeez. Well, I this is my first uh the Nationals are playing in the wild card game today. My first playoff game at Nats Park that I'll be missing ever, ever. Uh, so I was like playing tennis this morning on the beach and I was like really missing being in DC for this, uh, you know, baseball game. But then I was like, Oh, it's pretty good out here too. You know, I hope mountains. no one listens to this show that doesn't live in California. Cause you know, I was playing tennis on the beach. It's like, they're going to hate it you is the life. Point. It is the life out here though. Uh, I right. miss DC. I miss DC all the time. <laughs> Back to uh, Republican, uh, Doug Collins of Georgia. He partnered with uh, Democratic House member Hakeem Jeffries of New York, uh, and they received an award uh, for civility and teaming up on criminal justice reform. So uh, it's great to see them working together on that. It was actually awesome. I heard the NPR show where they interviewed those two lawmakers and uh, the Republican starts rapping and citing rap lyrics. And then, I don't know, it was charming. Doug Collins did? Yes. I, I gotta look that up. Uh, yeah, it was it was sweet. Um, so anyway, that's great. We'll end the show there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you want to learn more about what happened at the UN summit, I actually spoke on KCRW's show to the point with Warren Olney. Check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, we had a youth climate activist on as well as the United Nations reporter. So more there for you if you want it. And of course you can find political climate on Apple podcasts, Google play, Stitcher, Spotify, almost all the podcasting services. We hope you'll Julia, go there Julia, and subscribe. Julia, are we on iHeartRadio? Because I heard they're having some awards for podcasts, and I was listening to Halsey, her new song, and uh, so I'll listen uh, to that ad. So, are we? What are we doing? Are we on iHeartRadio or not? Uh, the moment you get us there, you make that <laughs> intro. Wait, you guys weren't nominated. <laughs> 
<laughs> Awkward. Maybe it got lost in the mail. <laughs> oh, I heard radio call me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> And thanks also to our producer, Victoria Simon. She makes the show possible. We had a great time running around New York together. And that is our show. Thanks, as always, for listening. Until next time. 